good. I too would like to salute the active and retired and reservist community uh, amongst us. If you uh, have ever served in the armed services or are currently serving or reserves or retired, would you stand for just a moment, please, so we can express our gratitude. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you very much. God bless y'all. You may have a seat. <clears throat> when you think of the price that so many have paid down through the years, since the Revolutionary War, there are some 646,596 American troops that have lost their lives. Double that number in those that have been infirmed or hurt or wounded. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, the bloodiest war we ever had was the Civil War. More people were killed in the Civil War. More Americans died in our Civil War than all other wars put together. Uh, this world that we live in today is one that is racked with war and injustice and violence and, and corruption on so many different levels. And sometimes it is despairing to, to think about until you get into the scriptures that remind us this world is not all there is. Jesus is coming back soon for his church. I believe that with all of my heart. So as you celebrate and have your barbecues and stuff tomorrow, uh, remember that tomorrow is Memorial Day. And say a prayer for those that are in active uh, service or have lost their lives prior uh, to that. Pray. Pray for these armed service men and women that guard and protect us and stand over us, that God's blessing would be upon them. Uh, you, we want them blessed by God tremendously. That's tomorrow. <clears throat> Today is a different holiday. And I'll bet most of you don't. How many of you know what today is? One, two. <laughs> Today's Pentecost. 50 days after Passover. That's what today is. Pentecost means, it's a, it's a Roman term, means 50 days uh, in the Greek language. <clears throat> in one of Jesus' appearances after the 40 days after his resurrection, he had given the great commission to his disciples while in Galilee. I know you know this passage well, but it bears repeating. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore you... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Would you turn with me to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 1, where we can see that <clears throat> Luke continues a narrative he began in the Gospel of Luke, the great physician, the Bible expositor, tells us in this historical account of the things that happened after Jesus was taken into heaven. Look at verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, that's his, his uh, guy who was undertaking his writing here, subsidizing, and I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Strong language from a guy who was trained in the medical arts. He knew the difference between a person who's alive and a corpse that had been laid in a cold tomb for three days. Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That's what gives us the drive we have to get through this life is the knowledge that the life to come is greater than anything we could ever imagine. Verse 4, on one occasion while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Command, it's not a suggestion. <coughs> Excuse me. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Say wait. Sometimes it requires patience we don't have. 
We spend a good part of our lives waiting. Jesus asks them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think this is essential that you understand this. Throughout the book of Acts, the words baptized with the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit come upon you and being filled with the Holy Spirit are all synonymous terms used interchangeably throughout the book of Acts. Don't ever get in and argue with certain, oh, this is different than that, or no, no, they're these words by Jesus and the following disciples. Uh, all are interchangeable terms and mean the same thing. Notice that in those opening verses, uh, Jesus has given them a command to wait. There's a couple of different ways to look at waiting. How many of you enjoy waiting? Long lines, Walmart, Saturday, ring a bell. Nobody likes that kind of waiting, and that's not the kind of waiting that Jesus is advocating. The word used there comes from the picture of a servant in who is doling out the food at a banquet. It would be synonymous to a, a waiter or waitress in a restaurant today where you go and they wait upon you. They are hustling and bustling between the kitchen and, and your table and others, and they're bringing food and clearing dishes. They're very active. They're not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, waiting. That's the kind of waiting that Jesus is talking about here, where you are actively doing something while you wait for something else to happen. You're actually pursuing it, and in anticipation, you're setting the stage. It's like putting the dishes out before a Thanksgiving meal over at your house. There are certain things that you do in preparation to the festivities. Waiting on the Lord is the best preparation that we could engage upon. And then Jesus said in verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you, now that you've risen from the dead, now would be a great time to kick Rome out and to turn over the kingdom to the, the Jewish nation and it'll just grow and envelop the earth. Are you going to now establish your kingdom and kick Rome out? That's what everyone wanted. But Jesus answered to them, it was a bit less than they had expected. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. But you will, future tense, receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on or upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're waiting for power. Jesus had given them the great commission, but then it's almost as if He's saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. So I'm not, ask you, I'm not asking you to go out witnessing. I'm asking you to become a living witness. Where it's not something you do, it is who you are. The greatest work of the Holy Spirit is not what He can do through you, but what He wants to do in you. Most people skip that step. Why? Because they don't wait upon the Lord. They're not actively seeking Him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're not in the Word of God. They're not in prayer. They're unengaged and just kind of flip-flop from one day to the next, hoping that God will show up and, and bless them for it. <clears throat> but I, I want to draw your attention to that in verse 8. You will, that's a guarantee, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In some versions, it says on you, not a good interpretation. The Greek word is epi, where we get the word epidermis, the stuff that's on top of your skeletal structure and muscles and tendons and such. The epidermis, it's what's on top. That's the term here. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, this is an external work of heaven where he pours his power into a human vessel. But its origin is heavenly. It's not man. Man's responsibility is to simply wait upon the Lord, actively searching out him and his word, opportunities for service, praise, worship, communion, all of the rest of that, while we wait for the next thing that the Holy Spirit wants to do. And it is amazing. I can't wait to get into the next chapter to see what the Holy Spirit's doing. To a people that are just surrendered to him and eagerly seeking him, but Jesus told him, if you don't wait upon me, 
in that active sense of the word, nothing is going to happen. The church today has mostly settled for nothing happening in their lives personally. Oh, they, I'm not saying they're not good people. They go to church, they sing the songs, and when they go home, they're virtually unchanged, and through the work week, they have little consciousness of the presence of God. They go through the motions. Some people actually come to church late so they don't have to do praise and worship. How can you not want to praise and worship the Lord? I, I don't understand that. It's not a matter of genre of music or the tempo or who it is. That's not the issue. The worship starts in the heart of hearts. But when we do it together, something happens that pleases the Lord. Jesus promised after the Holy Spirit come, they would be witnesses. When he comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost. Not that they would witness. The church today does not share its faith because the Holy Spirit has not come upon them in power because they're not waiting upon the Lord. They're not engaged in the Word of God and personal Bible study and devotional time on a daily basis. They pick it up and do it when they think about it. It's not witnessing that will turn our world upside down for Jesus. It's being witnesses. A lifestyle that speaks louder than your words. When people see Jesus in you, they see the love, they see the prayer, they see the exuberance that you have for the living God. What the world wants to do is see legitimate Christianity in and through the lives that are surrendered to Him. And what God can do in a marriage, what God can do in a hopeless and thankless job situation, what God wants to do in you and in your family, among your friends at school, that's what the world needs to see. Not fractured families, but families made whole because they're centered around Jesus Christ. How exciting it would be to see the world affected and impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon each one of us. You know, the, the trend that seems like today in, in the church, and not one particular comes to mind, but, but the church, generally speaking, the present trend seems to be uh, that the church should be culturally relevant. That if I was a really good pastor, I would roll up my sleeves so I could show you my tattoos or wear a really tight T-shirt to show you that I've been working out in the gym a lot. And so you wind up with a lot of short, tattooed pastors trying to make a statement that they are hip, they are culturally relevant. Have you noticed that Jesus never tried to do any of that stuff in Scripture, but we think it's okay today? It's not. A friend of mine was telling me he went to church somewhere here a while back, and he said, I went to worship what I heard was a concert turned up so loud it physically hurt my ears. I tried to talk to my wife who was right beside me, and I turned to her and this far from her ear, I screamed at the top of my voice and she could not understand what I was saying. He said, if that's worship, I don't want to ever come back to this church. Oh my but we've brought that mentality into the church. We've got to be hip and cool and culturally relevant. And all it does is distance people from the heart of God. That mentality is not of God. It's of the world. But we have somehow thought that if we can appeal to the world and act like the world, we'll draw the world in. Is that what Jesus did? He said, go and sin no more. He called the tax collector away from his tax collector's booth. He called the, the men away from their fishing nets. Come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, let's have, let's have an organizational meeting and see how hip and cool we can be. Let's start dressing like the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and maybe we can draw some of them in. Cultural compromise? It is absolutely wrong and yet churches today clamor after such thing, it is witnesses living for Jesus that will impact the, the world the most. I don't want to do church the way of the world. I want to do it the way of God. And so I will have to consult God's Word. In Zechariah 4, 6, he said, 
Lord said it best of all. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It's a supernatural work. But if we're not in the place where we're hearing from God, if we're not in the Word, if we're not in prayer, if we're not engaged in worship, we have no Holy Spirit power to do anything, and the church remains silent. Spirit-filled, on-fire, zealous Christians sharing the reality of God's love, His plan, Jesus, who in turn, that's what draws people to Jesus, His love, His compassion, the words that He spoke. And He spoke, He said, I don't say anything except that God tells me what to speak. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. The early church never heard of marketing the church. They were simply in love with Jesus and walking empowered lives under the influence and leading and and teaching of the Holy Spirit. It was real simple. In fact, that's the history of Calvary chapels. You know, Pastor Chuck used to remark, you know, that I find it amazing that God would use a 45-year-old bald-headed fat pastor to appeal to a bunch of hippies. Well, they weren't coming because he had a a sleek armful of tattoos and had been working out in the gym, so you'd be impressed with the size of his biceps. That tells me there's something fundamentally wrong with a person that has to draw such attention to himself when, in fact, anybody staying behind the pulpit should draw attention to God. These early apostles, man, they were walking in the power of God's Holy Spirit. They didn't have any cell phones. They weren't texting. They didn't have any TV, no movie theaters, no PlayStations, Nintendos, or Game Boys, no Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, no fast food restaurants, no Internet. They didn't even have hot dogs. And yet somehow or another with their changed lives that were not culturally relevant, They turned their world upside down for Jesus Christ. And that was because they acted like him, not the world. We can never save the world by acting like the world. They know their path is helpless, hopeless, and heartless. They're out there looking for something. They know this, though. They haven't found it yet. We know the answer to be Jesus Christ. But if all we're going to be is lukewarm and watered down and unengaged and uncaring... We'll never be the light of the world that Christ called us to be. Those 12 men in the book of Acts changed the world. They changed their world. One man, Paul, who didn't own a method of transportation, was able to take the gospel as far as the British Isles and Spain to the west and and as far as the eastern edge of the frontiers of the Roman Empire. He didn't even own a vehicle. He didn't have an animal as it's ever recorded in in Scripture. Let me answer a question. Is it possible to grow a church without without strategies and demographic studies, slick programming, TV, and self-promotion and sales hype? Well, the early church did. And yet we've reverted to the ways of the world instead today, hoping to grow our church. And I think that's a problem. I think that many today are concerned about the growth of their church instead of his church. They're clamoring after success as defined by the world, the sinful world that needs to be saved from its sins. The opening verses, in fact, the opening four verses in the book of Acts in chapter 1 are all one continuous sentence in the original language, and Paul wants us to know that's one continuous thought. That's why they do that in the original language. That former book was the Gospel of Acts, obviously, but he gets quickly to his point that the whole issue is if we're going to do anything, if we're going to do anything, it'll be by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you've got to wait upon the Lord to do that. Just jot down what waiting is. It's praying all the time. It is searching out the Word of God. It is celebrating communion. It is praise and worship. It is seeking Him with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Wait, I say, wait upon the Lord. David had it right in the Psalms. Wait upon the Lord. Don't wait like in a line at Walmart. No. Be patient, but seek and act and knock. Ask, Jesus said in Matthew 7. 
and it'll be given to you. They were going to be baptized. That means immersed totally and completely, filled overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And the result, obviously, is spiritual power to do what? To become witnesses. The church today doesn't witness because it doesn't have the Holy Spirit's power. It's not that they lack the command of God to do so. They don't do so because they feel they can't do so. My flesh is too weak. I stutter. I'm not good in public one-on-one situations. I, excuse, excuse, excuse. We heard them all from the lips of Moses when God called him to call the people out of Israel, out of Egypt. Excuse me. But we're, we don't have spiritual power today because we're not filled with his Holy Spirit. That can be corrected, by the way. You don't need the power, however, if you're not willing to be a witness. <laughs> That's why it's given. He's given supernaturally to empower us to do spiritual things for the Lord's sake. The purpose is not to give you Holy Spirit goosebumps, not to enamor you with some spiritual gift. Oh, I got the gift of prophecy. Oh, I got the gift of tongues. I can do this. I can do that. Paul said, we don't have love. It's just we're clanging cymbals and banging gongs. What we need is spiritual power. The gifts will come. They have their place. The spiritual filling will come for those that, that wait upon them. The, the gifts will be manifest. The fruit of the Holy Spirit will be manifest. But it's the Holy Spirit you need to be filled with before anything happens. Otherwise, we move from this day, this day of Pentecost, when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the believers of Christ. If we don't embrace that memorial today, then we continue from now into eternity as a powerless church living in an unchanged and sinful world. I know the world kind of, you're, you're kind of thinking, I don't like the world. It's yucky, I don't even want to touch it. Well, Jesus touched lepers. You and I can do the same. Let's love them into the kingdom of God. Let's tell them about the hope that is real. It resides in our hearts. That Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead. He's alive today and wants to impart a very supernatural existence to, to those that trust in him. It's not about us trying to impress people. It's, a, it's about him. It's all about him. And it has never been anything but that. It says in verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, After this he was taken up. Jesus was before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Someday you and I will be taken up as well in an event that we commonly call the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Dead in Christ will rise first, but afterwards we who are alive and remain will be caught up together and so meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air, and be with him forever. So when Jesus rose literally and physically from the Mount of Olives, the angels show up and say, he's coming back the same way he left. Let's look at that. Verse 10, while they were intently looking up to the sky, as Jesus is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood be be beside them and said, boo! That would freak you right out. You're looking for one, all, and all of a sudden, a couple of strangers beside you go, whoa, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? God didn't ask you to sit here looking into the sky. He gave you a job to do. Share the love of Christ with the planet. You got some work to do. You're busy sky gazing. This same Jesus, we got the word of the angels here, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He's coming back physically and literally. I hope the church is prepared globally for that event. I know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. But I don't want the church to be caught off guard. It says, uh, then after this ever so mild rebuke, the same Jesus has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you leave. And if you have a little margin there in Saturday Bible, just write First Thessalonians 4, 17. Then the disciples decide, you know, we quickly have to pick a replacement for Judas Iscariot. Why? The Lord hadn't prompted that at all. 
But it does say in verse 14 of Acts 1, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then Peter stands up and says, guys, we need to do this. Have you ever been a part of a crowd where somebody says, hey, we've got to do something? Why? Maybe we should wait upon the Lord in prayer before we go out there and flippantly do the first thing that comes to our little monkey brains. Among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and then he stands up and, and tells them the, what he would like to see happen. They decide on this guy named Matthias, who is never heard of again in Scripture. I think it was premature. I think the 12th disciple that was supposed to replace Judas Iscariot was none other than the great apostle Paul, but they'd have to wait five years for that. Most people don't have that kind of patience. You should. Because if you, if you are impatient, and remember, patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you're not filled with that fruit of the Holy Spirit, you are apt to do something rash. Born of your impatience, 99 times out of 100 in that place, you'll make a bad decision. You ever made a bad decision? I'll bet those close to you could rattle off 100. Bad choices in jobs, bad choices in who you got married to, bad choices left and right to engage in this sin or that sin. They were waiting upon the Lord. But it says after they chose Matthias, it says, and then they prayed in verse 24. Wouldn't it have been a good idea to do that before? I mean, that's like going out and buying a Lamborghini and then praying that God will help you make the payments. Maybe we should consult the Lord as to whether we should have bought it up front or not <laughs> if we can't make the payments. You don't, you don't make up your mind and do what you're going to do and then ask God to bless it. That doesn't make any sense at all. But a lot of us have done that. We could save ourselves a lot of headaches and hearts, heartaches if we would just pray and seek the Lord first. God knows our hearts. Well, in chapter 2 and verse 1, which is really where I wanted to get to. You find the coming of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know when the Holy Spirit was going to fall, but they were waiting on the Lord. They were praying. They were in church. They were fellowshipping. They were singing their psalms and hymns to the Lord. They were waiting on Him in a very active sense of the word. And only then did the Holy Spirit respond. If you don't do those things, the Holy Spirit will not respond, and you will live an extremely un- supernatural life. You can't have it both ways. You're either living a natural life or a supernatural life. I don't know what yours is characterized as today. It has to be supernatural or we have no impact in the world and we are right where Satan wants us to be. Lukewarm, lackadaisical, unengaged, and not caring. While so many find their way to the grave and ultimately in hell, Coming of the Holy Spirit, look at the verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came together, that's today, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Previously, Jesus said, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He had said the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Same exact event. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. <sighs> Holy Spirit comes with audible manifestations. I mean, nothing gets your attention quite like the sound of a tornado. That would get your full attention. And then this visible fire manifestation. Oh, <laughs> I remember Jesus said in John 3, 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Equating that with the work of the Holy Spirit. A tornado is an attention grabber to be sure. Do you remember when God created Adam from the dust of the earth? It says he breathed into Adam the breath of life. That's Genesis 2, 7. God assembled the church as he had assembled Adam from common elements. And as he breathed upon Adam, so he breathed here upon the church. 
glorious things happened. Jesus did that. He had told his disciples, the Holy Spirit has been with you. The Greek preposition is para, where we get the word parallel. The Holy Spirit has been alongside of you for a long time. He's been needling at you. He's been trying to get your attention. He's been trying to draw you to himself. But that's an external relationship. It would be like your, your spouse nudging you in the ribs, trying to get your attention on something. Same deal. Jesus said the Holy Spirit has been with you, but in the future, he will be in you. Then you'll remember in John, I believe it's chapter 19, Jesus breathed upon them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Is there any doubt in your mind that they received the Holy Spirit at that moment back in John 19? They got the Holy Spirit. So what's happening at Pentecost? A subsequent experience to having been saved and given the Holy Spirit. Now he comes upon these believers in power. That's different. So you can have one of three relationships with the Holy Spirit, and everybody who's saved in this room has one of these three. In fact, everybody in this room is saved and unsaved. He may be para, working on the outside of you, pricking your conscience and showing you right and wrong and pointing out, but it's an external relationship. You had that before you got saved. If you're not saved this morning, you have felt that nudge. You've called it conscience. It is God. That second relationship then is what the disciples experienced when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And every believer since has been given the Holy Spirit the moment you believed. He is now indwelling you. He's inside. That's a much more personal relationship, isn't it? To be external is somebody knocking on the door of your house. Having him inside the house is a different issue. Would you agree? You have to open the door. You have to open the door to let the Holy Spirit in. You have to invite him in. He's a gentleman. And he's not going to barge in. He's not going to disrupt your life. He wants so much to lead you, guide you, fill you, bless you, give you hope, encouragement, fire, zeal. But he's waiting for you to ask. Have you ever done that with a phone call? Well, I called them last. It's their turn to call me. I'm waiting. I'm not going to call them. They're going to call me. Not only does that sound just a little bit fleshly up front, but the Holy Spirit wants you to be proactive. Well, if the Holy Spirit wants to do something, he's just going to have to come upon me. He never will. He never will. You didn't ask. That means you don't want it. When my grandsons want something bad enough, they'll always get me one-on-one -on -one away from mom and dad and say, Papa, they want something. I know they want something. Even to the point that their mother has said, please don't keep bugging Papa to buy you something. I couldn't stop if I tried, so that's really not the issue. But have you noticed, and you, those of you that have raised kids, you know this, sometimes you just wait for them to ask. You're in the living room licking your ice cream, and your grandchildren come up and say, and they look at you with those puppy dog eyes, say, Papa, can I have one? Now, if you're a grandpa, you know what I mean, you would never think of saying no. No, you'll give them your, you lick it to death, kiddo. Here you go. Knock yourself out. Well, I'll get, I got 10 more just like it in the fridge. You want all 10? Grandpas are like that. We're just in, so, we're, we're so indulgent with our grandkids. You know what? You're the children and grandchildren of God. Ask, Jesus said, and keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking. Knock, and the door will be open to you. But that's on you. To do that, the Holy Spirit, his, his power is not going to come upon Well, I've never spoken in tongues. Have you ever asked? I've never prophesied. Have you ever asked for the gift of prophecy? Well, I've never healed anybody. Have you asked for the Holy Spirit to give you the power to do that? Because if you don't ask, here's what you got. Nothing. And that's where the world is at today. It has nothing to offer the world. Why? No Holy Spirit power. So we just limp from one crisis to the next and compare our sad and sorry stories with one another, hoping to drum up some pity when, in fact, Christ died to give you victory. But some have said, ah, don't eat it. I'm okay. 
I'm okay, you're okay. Nobody's okay. The Bible says all have fallen short. None of us are okay. And the sooner we admit that, Jesus said it. You, apart from me, you can do nothing. Your marriage will flounder without him. Your work will flounder without him. Your enjoyment of this world will flounder without him. He wants to be Lord of it all. You want a better marriage? Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and to give you a better marriage. It's pretty simple. James puts it as bluntly as a punch in the face. You have not because you ask not. Where's the power? Have you asked? Ask God to breathe upon the church today as he breathed into Adam the breath of life. He birthed the church. He sustains the church. Galatians 3 Paul says this, I would like to learn just one thing from you guys. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by observing the law? Trying to be good enough, trying to be a good Jew before you could become a Christian, get circumcised. Are you so foolish after having begun in the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? A powerful church is a Spirit-filled, a Spirit-led church. And without that, we'll never make an impact at home or at work or in this world. And that's just where Satan wants us to be, impotent, unable to make a difference. Marriage is falling apart, and we accept it as the norm because it is the norm in the world. And that's what we compare ourselves to today. So our divorce rate is the same inside the church or outside the church. And we have become very comfortable with that fact. But when the Holy Spirit came and these tongues of fire descended upon him, man, stuff happened. Now, fire, as I recall, does three things. It consumes, it illuminates, and it warms up. And that's what the Holy Spirit really kind of does for us. He consumes the sin in your life. He consumes the extraneous things that vie for your attention. He gives illumination spiritually to the reading of his word and to his direction for any given circumstance. He illuminates. He lights up the path ahead of you like a car's headlights on a dark country road. And fire warms. My wife talked me into buying a little quartz fireplace heater for a couple of years back for some special occasion. And that thing will drive you out of the living room. When it's minus 20 degrees, that thing puts out enough heat to give you a sunburn at 10 feet. But she loves it. Why? The warmth. The warmth. What's the opposite? A cold heart? Is that what you want? A cold heart? When the Holy Spirit wants to come, this consuming fire that consumes, illuminates, and warms up, I want the Holy Spirit to do that. And as soon as they had been waiting on the Lord, as soon as this violent wind sounded, these tongues of fire fall on them, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Same as being baptized back in chapter 1 and verse 5. Same as Him coming upon you in power. It's that Greek preposition, epi. But I just want you to lock this in your, in your brain this morning. What relationship do I want with the Holy Spirit? Because He's going to give you what you ask for. External, I have a para experience. He's parallel with me, but external, I don't know him. I'm not saved. I'm not regenerate. I'm not born again. This morning, just ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. He will give you his Holy Spirit. That moves you into the second relationship that you can have with the Holy Spirit. Now that he's in you, you're supposed to act like it. Where's the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Where is that? That's what the world's looking for is fruit in your life. Fruit that will impact them because they don't have love and joy and peace and patience. You should, and it should make them envious. When they look at your marriage, they go, man, I want a marriage like that. Or does the world say, well, they look just like me? Whining, complaining, fault-finding, critical catty with each other? That's not a marriage that teaches the world anything about Christ. 
They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Tongues, they speak in, in tongues, that they, languages they had not learned, individual dialects of the people that had come from all over the Roman Empire. It, it was amazing to me. And when the people heard this good news in their own languages, they all came together and said, what's going on? Some said in verse 13, uh, they made fun of him, said, oh, they've had too much wine. So Peter responds, he stands up with, with the 11. Notice it doesn't say the 12. What about Matthias? He's a non-player. They had judged and made a poor judgment on who to replace and when to replace Judas Iscariot. So the Holy Spirit now in verse 14 of chapter 2 still describes them as the 11, not the 12. Just because you find a substitute doesn't mean it was the person of God's choosing. You've got to wait upon the Lord. So the 11, and he raised his voice, addressed the crowd, and he preaches then for the next three minutes, quoting Scripture. I love this. Peter's first public sermon. I mean, it would be like me saying, uh, Luke, would you come up here and finish my sermon for me today, please? He will have a seizure. He doesn't want to do it. Then I could ask my Kathy, honey, would you like to come up here and finish my sermon? <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit rising up in her. Peter, with no preparation, no sermon notes, extemporaneous, off the cuff, gives a three-minute sermon and 3,000 people get saved. It's been unequaled in the history of the church since. Three-minute sermon with no preparation. Well, is that really right? He'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. He'd walked with Jesus for three years. I think there's a whole lot of preparation that went into this message. He'd obviously spent time in the Word of God because he quotes it, long quotes from obscure prophets like Joel, and he quotes it effortlessly. He's learned the importance of studying the Word of God so that when you see these things come to pass, you can know that prophecy is being fulfilled. It increases and encourages your faith. It's glorious. Tongues to describe the glorious wonders of God. And so what happens after a, a three-minute sermon? 3,000 people get saved. The Holy Spirit has come upon him in power. The Holy Spirit is now convicting the crowds of their sins. And they ask, well, what, what should we do about this? Look down there at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the people, the crowds that were there for Pentecost heard this cutting three-minute message, they were cut to the heart. And it wasn't because Peter tried to act like them and be culturally sensitive. He's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He's not trying to appeal to their carnal nature like the modern church growth movement does. And he has no interest in doing anything but glorifying God. He didn't care about the numbers. They were cut to their heart and, he's, and uh, they said to Peter and the others, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? You know what Peter said to him in a nutshell? You crucified Christ. You crucified Christ. It was you who hollered, crucify him, crucify him, just 50 days ago. What should we do? Let's bring it down to us. If Christ died for our sins, then it was you and I that crucified him. Might as well have been the hammer and nails in your hand that drove it through the flesh of the Son of God. We killed him. I can't pin it on the Romans or even the Jews, as heinous as their acts were. When you come to the knowledge that you have sinned against a holy and sinless God, what should you do? Verse 38, Peter, blunt as I would expect him to be, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Repent and be baptized. 
Repentance is an internal thing, and the picture of that repentance is seen in the external form of baptism. You're identifying yourself publicly with the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But baptism takes place in here before it takes place in a baptistry or a lake or a poolside. Repent. Wasn't that John the Baptist's first message? Wasn't that Jesus' first message when he preached? after coming out of his wilderness temptations, he said exactly the same thing as John the Baptist had said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And yet there are churches today that refuse to use the word repent. The single largest church in the United States of America is pastored by a fool who says, I do not use the word repent or repentance because people don't like it. So we're man-pleasers now instead of God-pleasers. And that's the largest single church in the United States of America. People gravitate to that because nothing is required of them. Sinners are allowed to sit in service unrepentant, being told, no, you can be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and wise, and God loves you, and he's just going to empty the bucket on you. You don't have to do anything. And yet Jesus said, you have to repent. John the Baptist said, you have to repent. Peter here at Pentecost says, you have to repent. That means change your heart and your mind. It means confess your sin and ask to be forgiven, and grace flows once the repentant heart is brought before the throne of God. These things result in the forgiveness of sin, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So all of you that are saved, you have the Holy Spirit, but it's optional to walk in His power. I know you're saved. I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm questioning the power of the church as I see it across the globe today, and it seems to be a relatively powerless church. And you wonder why. So, so many people come in that, uh, that are convicted. It says in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number. Here's uh, the final key and closing point. These 3,000 new believers instinctively, because the Holy Spirit was upon them, did what the Lord wants you and I to do today. They devoted themselves to four things. And the word devoted there in verse 42 is a very strong term and worded in such a way in the Greek language that they continuously continue to do that. It's a participle. So they were devoting, devoted themselves to the Lord, but they were continuously were devoting themselves to the Lord. They devoted themselves to four things. First of all, the apostles' teaching. That's the New Testament. We've handily got it written down for us. And they secondly devoted themselves to the fellowship. The fellowship like we have here this morning. To the breaking of bread, that's communion. They devoted themselves to that. And fourthly, they devoted themselves to prayer. Corporate prayer, individual prayer. Look at God's response. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. Well, that speaks of unity. And had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They had church seven days a week, and it doesn't say they burned out. You can't even get people to go to church two times a week today. So churches are dropping their Wednesday night services left and right. Have you noticed that? In just the last 20 years, every church in this town uh, used to have a Sunday morning and a Sunday night and a Wednesday night service. All of the Sunday night services have gone bye-bye because nobody attended. There was a lack of interest on the behalf of the church. Wednesday nights are going by the wayside. I get calls weekly. Do you guys have a Wednesday service? I can't find a church that has a midweek service. But I really need God's strength to get me through the rest of the week. Yeah, we got one. Yeah, we got one. We're one of the few churches in town that still do, but I wonder how long, much longer that will continue if people choose to live an unsupernatural life. If you don't need the Holy Spirit, then what's the need of Bible study or prayer? Hmm. Wait, I say, wait upon the Lord. Wait actively upon the Lord in prayer and worship, fellowship, asking and seeking and knocking and serving as we wait upon the Lord. It's an active process, not, not a passive one. 
Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean you sit in your pew until He comes back, engaged in doing nothing. <clears throat> What's the greatest need of the church today? The filling of the Holy Spirit and His power. Power is given for service, not selfishness. It's not about you, it's about Him. So when you think about that, what kind of church do you want to be? Because you get the kind of church that you want, ultimately. Your church will look just like you after a while because that's what happens. What kind of church will we be in 10 years? What kind of Christian will you be, powerless or powerful? But you have to be intentional because lukewarmness is the default position. All you have to do to be lukewarm is nothing. Don't read, don't pray, don't fellowship, don't worship, don't celebrate the Lord's Supper. Remember, any old dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live fish, a dedicated fighter who will fight and buck the tide of this world to change the world. Why? What's our motivation in doing that? Jesus is coming. He is coming, and he said, he said that he's coming at a time that we don't expect him. A personal Pentecost is kind of what the church needs today. And I thought it was a good opportunity to review that in as much as today is Pentecost. Well, let's stand together, shall we, as the praise band comes up. <clears throat> I thank you for your word and the conviction of your Holy Spirit, Father, because there is not a one of us in this room that couldn't grow more, engage more, serve more, ask and seek and knock more than we do. We don't want to be Peter where we make a decision and then they pray. We want to be proactive in everything. We want, to, we want your perfect will to be done in our lives. So I pray, Father, that you would energize your people, that today as we sing this last song, hands would be raised and hearts emptied out before you in surrender and seeking a fresh filling, a baptism of your Holy Spirit. Apart from you, Jesus, I know we can do nothing. So fill us afresh, please, Lord, with the supernatural resources we need so that we have the marriages that we want, the influence in our workplace that we want to have. We want an experience with you that is internal. More, we want an experience with you, Holy Spirit, where you come upon us subsequently in power, power to live godly lives, power to say no to sin, power to encourage others to surrender their lives to Jesus. Make us a powerful church, Lord, a remnant these last days as we eagerly wait upon your second coming. In Jesus' name, Father, amen.